Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode, Parallel Lives, The True Story of Lizzie Borden, Part 2. So, you think you know all about Lizzie Borden? I beg to differ. Unless you have read the book Parallel Lives, A Social History of Lizzie A. Borden and Her Fall River, written by Michael Martins and Dennis Bennett, curators of the Fall River Historical Society, or unless you have had the pleasure, as I did, of sitting down with them and hearing the unvarnished true story of Lizzie Andrew Borden, told by two undisputed experts. Let's pick up where we left off as we try to separate fact from fiction, including Did Lizzie Borden have an affair with actress Nance O'Neill? Well, stay tuned. You might find out. Um, So, Dennis, um, let's go to the burning dress or what she was wearing. And no one can say what she was wearing. Everyone said something different. What is your official take on what she was wearing? And did she burn a dress on the Sunday after the murders? I don't think you can really come up with any uh, educated guess as to what she was wearing because of the fact that there are so many contradictory um, statements made in all of the trial testimony. Um, so uh, as far as the burned uh, dress, the burning of the dress, um, Alice Russell, who was a friend of the Borden's sisters, um, testified at the inquest and didn't mention anything about the dress. She testified at the preliminary hearing. Uh, She testified at the grand jury and never mentioned the dress. Uh, You know, was there anything unusual that happened when you were staying at the Borton house? No. No. Um, And then finally, after the grand jury, she uh, went to an attorney on Bedford Street and uh, explained to him uh, what had happened. And she had been in the kitchen of the Borden house. Lizzie came in. She went over to a clothes press that was near the stove, opened it up, took out a waist and a skirt, and started to tear them up. She took the burner off the stove, and Alice Russell asked her what she was doing. And she said, I'm going to burn up this old dress. It's all covered in paint. And Alice said, I wouldn't do that if I were you. But she went ahead and did. Later that day, um, Alice said to Lizzie, I believe they were in the dining room, that she thought that burning the dress was one of the worst things that she could have done. And Lizzie asked, why did you let me do it? Um, That's the story she told the attorney. They went back to the grand jury. They were reconvened. Alice Russell gave testimony. To this day, uh, Alice Russell's family uh, refers to her as uh, Lizzie's Lizzie's turncoat friend. Um, did she burn a dress? 
uh, who knows? They, they even had the house painter uh, give testimony that, yes, he had, uh, you, you know, she had leaned on the door jam, you know, that's how the paint got on the dress. Um, Emma Borden, uh, again, at taking care of baby Lizzie, took the stand um, as a, a witness uh, to the dress burning, and she said, well, of course she did. I told her to, it was taking up a hook in the closet. So burden of responsibility right away is taken away from Lizzie. She was behaving. She was following her maternal figure um, and doing what Emma said to do. So again, I mean, you can look at it either way. She was either guilty of sin and destroying evidence, or she was just doing what Emma said. You, know, you have to question, I mean, there's, I think clearly no question that she burned her dress, but if she took it from a clothes press or closet and, and burned it, if she was smart enough to get away with this horrific crime, would she then have been stupid enough to hang a dress in a kitchen closet and burn it? So, you know, Alice Russell was an interesting woman. There are two things I was always told about Alice Russell, and that was that she had lovely white hair, not gray, but white and that she was a very pious woman and she would never tolerate a lie. So she taught a number of ladies that I knew to sew. Florence Brigham, for example, was a student of Alice Russell's, um, not through the public schools, but privately. And the funny thing is Mrs. Brigham could never sew. She could barely sew a button, but she always said it was her, her own fault, certainly not Alice Russell's. So I think that it clearly bothered Alice Russell so much that she might have told a falsehood that she decided that she had to tell the truth ultimately to the detriment of Lizzie. And so the Borden sisters ceased to sort of see her from that point on. The story is that the autopsies were conducted in the Borden house. This is not the case. The autopsies were not conducted in the Borden house. Although we have photographs, what they did in the Borden house was remove the stomachs and the intestines from the bodies, which were sent up to Harvard and Edward Stickney Wood, who was um, a, a pathologist there, cutting edge at, at the time. It was a, sort of the dream team. So he wanted to determine through the process of digestion the uh, approximate time between, between the two murders and also rule out any poisoning, which ultimately was done. So. So the bodies were taken, um, Winwood was the undertaker, they were prepared for the funeral service. There were open caskets, um, apparently looked quite peaceful. Um, they were not photographed. And they were taken up to Oak Grove Cemetery, however, they were not interred. They were put into um, a small building. As you enter the cemetery, it's the building at the left, and an autopsy was conducted. That was a week later. A week it was later. on the 11th. And we have the autopsy reports. The bodies had begun to decompose. The, the brain matter was liquid at that point. So it clearly was, you know, I think decidedly unpleasant. And so at that point, the heads were removed from the bodies. They were, were cut off. And they were um, taken home by Dr. Bowen. Mm-hmm. And mm -mm. No, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Dolan. Dolan. Dolan, I'm sorry, by Dolan, and um, were prepared. And his son used to tell a story 
about as a child hiding in the kitchen and watching the process. And they basically were, were boiled and then the flesh was cooked off them and then scraped. So there were plaster casts made of, of, the, of the skulls. And um, so the skulls were presented as evidence or the plaster casts were presented as evidence. I'm not sure which really. I think there's some question there. And so another wonderful Dolan family story was that um, the skulls, the plaster casts of the skulls had survived, but that the old maid Dolan sisters at some point destroyed them because they, they didn't think it was appropriate, um, especially when there were family members who were sort of playing with them. Um, so what happened to the skulls? Tremendous uh, uh, controversy there because the Historical Society has been accused for years of having the skulls and people have come here and remember seeing the skulls and there's a wonderful story about, this was from a priest actually on the Cape somewhere who I think is probably now dead but then was probably insane and um, he could recall Florence Brigham taking him to a big iron box and opening the box and bringing out these skulls for him to see and of course people believed this, this bull and so what happened to the skulls in a private collection there's a very interesting document and it is a note that was sent um, to Dr. Dolan and it says something to the effect of as my client has been acquitted of the charges against her, please return the remains and or effects of the late A.J. Borden and wife. Effects is simple enough. Remains can only be one thing, and those would be skulls. And so what happened to them? And people have said, well, they couldn't have been interred because there's no interment record at Oak Grove Cemetery. Give me a break. This was 1893 Fall River. If one knew the right people, Things were done very quietly, so there's no doubt in my mind that those skulls were were likely interred at Oak Grove Cemetery very quietly. The Borden sisters certainly didn't keep them as bookends. I mean, so I, I think it's unlikely that they have survived. I now, could be wrong, and I'll admit well, that, I'm but I think to it's remember, sensible. This is like years and years ago. Um, an A and E or something, or maybe it was even a local thing where some somebody went with a metal detector or a sonar. Professor, or um, um, he was stars. with with what. Was he at Vanderbilt University? Where did he come from? Uh, George Washington. George Washington University. He's quite quite eminent, and so now he came up. Now the name stars. Yeah, he came up, and and um, he started a movement where he wanted to um, disinter the, the remains, and um, thought that that somehow he could use DNA to prove who had murdered the Bordens, which of course from the samples you would have DNA of. Andrew and Abby, but you certainly, who, who, what would it prove other than it would, you know, give him another book to write perhaps. I can remember a wonderful photograph of him sitting by the Borden grave, and I believe it was on um, the front of a National Enquirer, mm -hmm. and that was a good place for it, I thought, at the time. So, so it was an interesting story. I know that there were no descendants, but sort of lateral descendants were appalled at the idea, and some did come forward at that point. And so, um, the city never gave him permission to, to even, I think, pursue, you know. But if you remember, which I don't, did, did he, with his sonar detector, did, did he come up with anything? He, he did, and I think at the time, and, and I would have to look, but I think at the time he said something about there being evidence of the graves having been disturbed. 
so so where where do you Dennis what do you feel about the obsession like you said books movies uh, musicals a ballet etc good question <laughs> um, it's unfortunate because it's very misdirected I personally feel um, I think that you're talking about uh, two very tragic stories um, three if you include Lizzie's story and um, people seem to forget um, the tragedy of it all um, it's I mean it, it's it, it becomes a, a, a becomes a whodunit uh, it becomes something that you giggle about you make jokes about and um, it's it's really blown out of proportion and people don't take it seriously at all you know it, it it's always been difficult for me I think partially because I spent so much time with with Florence Brigham who whose mother-in-law was a character witness at the trial who whose husband grew up in the shadow of Maplecroft certainly grew up calling Lizzie Auntie Borden and calling Emma Auntie Borden so it wasn't discussed by a lot of people. Of course, the historical society has come a long way. And so what we try to do here is to present the facts and to document whatever we say. So, you know, I think Dennis is, is right. People forget the tragedy of, of, of the story, the brutality of the story. They also forget that, that, you know, Lizzie Borden lived the majority of her life sort of relentlessly haunted by this specter of suspicion. She was innocent or she was guilty. So if, if she was guilty, then perhaps the difficulties of her life would have been atonement for her sins, one might think. But if she was innocent, then in her life, you're going to find the makings of an epic tragedy. So, so Lizzie Borden's life was, was not easy after the fact. Perhaps it was fitting, perhaps not. But she tried to live her life with some semblance of normalcy. And that wasn't easy. So in many ways, she was a, a survivor. Uh, she did not run away. She she stayed here, and there was good reason for that. So, so I think that that if people do serious research, and you know the case can be presented in a very tasteful manner, I can understand the fascination, and to some extent, I can sort of understand you know some of the, the honky tonk atmosphere because that's going to happen anyway. But that's not something the historical society does. So in order to tell the story and tell the story properly, the only organization that can do it is the Historical Society simply because we have the material and also have access to material that has not yet been made public. There is considerable material in private collections that ultimately, if it goes to any repository, will come to the Historical Society. So, so she lived the majority of her life after August 4th, 1892. So, so she stayed in Fall River, and one of the things that we tried to do with, with the book when we were doing the research was trying to document what her life was like after the fact. The interesting thing was that with, with books in the past, you'd usually have perhaps a chapter dealing with the Borden family and Lizzie's life before the events of August 4th, 1892. The entire book would be about the trial, and then you'd have a few pages about her life after August 4th, 1892. But this is where the majority of her life was lived. So we wanted to, to explore that. And people had attempted to do that in the past. And the mistake they made, of course, was they thought, what would be the greatest source of information? Well, her will. And they looked at her will and said, these are the people that she left 
things too. And so these must have been the people who were most important to her and the people that she knew. And for whatever reason, did or did not try to track those individuals down. So, so we looked at the will and we tracked down every person mentioned in that will and found descendants or lateral descendants of every person in that will, some of whom had material and some who didn't, and, and some of that material is now in the Historical Society's collection. But we knew that there was a whole other world out there to be explored. And so I've spent the majority of my life at the Historical Society and for a number of those years spent a lot of time with maiden ladies of good family. And every one of them who left a will that I was privy to also left a memorandum to that will. So this would have been a list for their executors to distribute items that were their possessions. And they would be given to people who might appreciate them outside of the will. And this was done in many cases because of probate. So, and, and in, in several instances, I was charged with doing that for some people. So I know how it worked. So there's no doubt in my mind that there was such a list and that Lizzie's, the, the two women that were in charge of the estate, Helen Layton and Grace Howe, would have distributed these items. And so we started exploring people that we knew she likely knew, and that led to other names of individuals. And so by exploring those avenues, started uncovering a wealth of information. And that's what made the latter part of the book, I think, as interesting as it, as it did, because it turned up stories. So there was a, a narrative that had descended through families, but also photographs, or letters or items that had belonged to Lizzie. The interesting thing there is we were talking to people in the United States and in South America and in Europe, all over the world, who were descendants of people that she had been friendly with. And we were getting from these individuals very similar or nearly exact stories about incidents that occurred. And they had some manner in which they could document what their ancestors had been privy to. The fascinating thing there was none of these people knew each other. And I challenge you to find a couple of individuals living on opposite sides of the world who are going to make up the exact same story. And so that led us to some sort of interesting avenues. I think, uh it's interesting to look at what decisions Lizzie made later in her life. Uh, she had two options um, after the acquittal, and uh, they were uh, to leave Fall River or to stay in Fall River. And it was a rock and a hard place. And so she decided to stay. If she had left, uh, granted, it would have looked like she was leaving because she was guilty and could have looked people in the face. Uh, so she stayed and lived in the face of it. Uh, interesting comment made by Lizzie um, as to why she stayed in Fall River uh, was that she remained here because w in the event that they did discover who killed her father, uh, she wanted to be able to walk down Main Street and look people in the eye that thought she was guilty. She wanted to face the people that had been cutting her all these years, as she said. 
So after she moved, uh, I mean, she spent not a long time at the Second Street house and then moved to uh, uh, Maplecroft. No, no, she didn't. She, she moved to French Street. It did not become Maplecroft until after Emma left. And, and there is stories, whether those are, uh, again, um, whispered down the lane of, of involving or being interested in actors and, and parties. Ah, Lizzie and, Borden, the lesbian, and her affair yeah, well, with Nancy O'Neill. Okay, you know, that's right, the deal. Right, you know, right, that's that's yeah. a great story. That's all a good right, well, one. Then, so so Nancy O'Neill. So Lizzie, Lizzie loved the theater. Yep. We know she loved the theater her entire life. She loved the theater. And so she traveled extensively in the United States. We, there's no evidence that she traveled abroad again after 1890 um, or after her grand tour in 1891, I think it was, 1890. 90. 90. But she certainly traveled throughout the United States and into Canada. So, so she loved the theater, and there was a period of time when she became very friendly with an actress by the name of Nance O'Neill. And so we have the Victoria Lincoln book to thank for the stories of the parties that she threw at Maplecroft, which of course was not called Maplecroft at that point, for Nance O'Neill and the orchestra hidden behind potted palms. And if you've been in the house, I don't know where you're going to hide an orchestra behind potted palms unless you put them on the roof or in the basement. But anyway, um, so there were these great stories and of course the neighbors were appalled by all of this. So so what do we know about Nance O'Neill? Nance O'Neill was a beautiful woman, a somewhat talented actress, who for a brief period in her career, that 1904-1905 season, was sort of the toast of New England. And so she played in Boston in 1904. Lizzie Borden saw her in 1904, sent her a note, later called on her. I believe she sent her some flowers. And so the two, for a very brief time, became fast friends. After Lizzie's death, Nance O'Neill said, we were like two ships that passed in the night. And I think that that was very much the case. So for a short period of time, which I think was sort of this sort of halcyon period for, for Lizzie, she and Nance O'Neill were friendly. Nance O'Neill was plagued with financial problems and Lizzie was very comfortable financially and very generous. She was generous to a fault for the rest of her life. So we thought that there might be a little more to the story we know that Nance O'Neill had a summer home in Tingsboro, Massachusetts, and that Lizzie went to Tingsboro and um, had visited with Nance and stayed there with her theater troupe. And so, so there are lots of stories. And at some point, and I don't know when, the story becomes a, a sexual one. And I, I don't quite exactly know where that comes from. Well, in 1984, I want to say, I might be wrong on the date, um, there was a letter from our collection that was quoted and was reputed to be a love letter. Frank Spearing. Frank Spearing, Lizzie. Uh, and he quoted, um, I had a dream about you last night and dare not put it into words. The letters to her dressmaker. Elderly dressmaker. My guess is if you're writing an old dressmaker and you had a dream about her and you don't want to talk about it, then it's probably that she had died. Uh, it was definitely not a love letter. It was the hook that he hung his entire theory on. And uh, it's still picking up the pieces. It to, yeah, today. To so so with, with Nance, while we were doing this research, we found a really wonderful letter at the Harry Ranscombe <laughs> Center in Texas. That's a theater collection. 
And it was written by an actress by the name of Rick Allen. And Rick Allen was part of Nance O'Neill's theatrical troupe, played, played Fall River, she played Boston. And so she writes basically severing all ties with Nance O'Neill's theater company, and she and Nance by this point are on very bad terms. And she mentions that she had a letter from Miss Borden, and in the letter Miss Borden wanted her to pay back a loan to Miss Borden. She goes on to say that she really needs some money from Nance because when they were in New York, she hawked her jewelry to loan the money to Nance O'Neill, who needed the money, and that she also borrowed $50 of Miss Borden at Tingsboro and gave that to Nance O'Neill, and Nance stiffed her on the, the loan. So Lizzie's back in fall over her, and she wants her money back. And clearly, if a letter went to Nance, it's highly likely that some letters went, I'm sorry, if a letter went to Ricca, it's highly likely that some letters went to Nance, who would have been, you know, avoiding Lizzie. So, so I think that the relationship was more of um, a financial arrangement than anything else. Of course, if you are an actress and you're experiencing really your first bout of success, and it was only that brief period that she struggled with her career throughout the rest of her life. So what better thing for an actress to do than to associate with a recently notorious woman? It certainly put her name in the papers. At one point, there was an article that said, Lizzie Borden to write play for Nance O'Neill. So I think that they were two ships that passed in the night, and I think the arrangement was more of a financial one than anything else. Do I hope that Lizzie Borden slept with Nance O'Neill? <laughs> I sure do. I mean, good for her. You know, I hope that she had some comfort in her life, but, but there's no evidence to document any of that. But it makes for a great story. So the stories about and Lizzie's funeral were, were um, that, that it was all very quiet and that no one was there. And um, um, we know that she had a funeral. And in fact, I knew at least two people who attended it. So the stories of her being buried alone were, were not true. In the dark of night. It, it was absurd. And so Lizzie Borden's funeral was conducted in the morning. There were a number of people there. Her pallbearers were all of her former chauffeurs who were still living, with the exception of one. And close friends. There were several vehicles that followed her hearse to the cemetery. And there was a funeral service, a graveside service. So after everyone left, and there's some evidence that there was somewhat of a collation afterwards, and we know this because of a receipt for cake at Sokol's, and Sokol's was at that point a very nice tea room that was in Fall River. So all of the names had been taken off of the flowers at the cemetery. and. It was said at the time there was a wealth of flowers at the cemetery, a wealth of tributes, and I believe it. And the names would have been taken off, I suspect, at Lizzie's request, because it would have been just like her to have instructed that the names be taken off so that the reporters wouldn't try to contact the people who had sent her flowers. So there were a number of people there. Now, one of the stories was that it was a local soprano, um, Vita. Uh, Vita Pearson Pearson Turner, Turner, who said that she 
was called to the boarding house and that she was ushered into a room and she was told to sing a couple of hymns. One of them was At Home in My Own Country and that she was paid $5 and told to leave and never tell anyone where she had been. And so people took that story and sort of elaborated on it. The interesting thing there is that we were given access to Vita Pierce and Turner's diaries. She did not go there at night. And the mention in her diary is not any mention any different than what the mention would be of anyone else she sang for. So why did Vita Pierce and Turner make up a story about this funeral? I don't think she made up a story about the funeral. I think that Vita Pierce and Turner was not a fool. Vita Pierce and Turner was a soprano of note. She sang at a lot of funerals. She sang at a lot of funerals of individuals from so-called good family. And she wasn't going to talk because she didn't want to lose their custom. So Vita Pierce and Turner did what she had to do. And there were a number of people there. So Lizzie Borden was not sent off alone. It's uh, interesting when you look at Lizzie's life after the acquittal um, and in, uh, assuming that um, these people were present at her funeral, uh, she assembled uh, her own family of sorts. There were people that were very loyal to her, uh, that crossed class distinctions. Uh, two of her most intimate friends were uh, two women, sisters-in-law, that were um, friends of Lizzie's housekeeper. And uh, the, the story of their, uh, her relationship with um, one of the women's daughters, uh, it's just a, a wonderful story of um, two little girls that were very much loved by Lizzie Borden. Um, but if you look at all the other people, chauffeurs that she had, that she maintained relationships with, uh, friendships with and their families as well, um, after they left her employ. Uh, and it, it was that circle uh, th that almost guaranteed would have been present at uh, her funeral. But they would have had no reason to document it because they didn't talk about that or much else about Lizzie. The, the, the fascinating thing there is that it, it, it crossed class lines. So the, the stories are that she was completely shunned by everyone she had known before the fact. That's not true. She had several close friends who were of her own class socially. So... So, you know, was she sort of a lady bountiful to a lot of people? Yes, she was. She was generous to a fault. She never wanted anyone to do anything for her because she always said she had enough money to buy what she wanted. But what she did for people, she did for them because she chose to and often did it very quietly. So she educated a number of people. She remembered certain things. Um, one of the things she always remembered were, were birthdays. And when she would send a birthday card, there's ample evidence that she would would send the birthday card special delivery. You have to remember that period, mail was delivered twice a day. Special delivery was just that. You paid extra for it. And so when she sent birthday cards to two little girls in particular, they were always stamped and sent special delivery because then the postman would come just for them. The The way we were able to document that is, is Dennis was talking about that the friends of Lizzie Borden's housekeeper, who she was absolutely devoted to and was absolutely devastated 
when when the housekeeper died. I think probably in the 1970s or 80s, there was an article that appeared in a local newspaper. And it referenced a woman living in Fall River who probably knew more about Lizzie Borden than anyone else living, which certainly wasn't the case, but certainly this woman knew a great deal. And the woman was not identified. And a couple of letters were published. So we knew they existed. And so looking at the letters, which people had looked at for years and were never able to figure out who the woman was, we looked at the letters, and there was a blatant, blatant piece of evidence in one of those letters that ultimately led us to find out who the letters belonged to. And so when we contacted the descendants of that individual, which this was a family living in Tiverton, and there are certain ways to go about contacting people, and the mistake people often make is they simply pick up the phone and call people, and that's not how it's done. There are certain ways that things should be done, and the historical society has been around long enough to know how to do that. And so... Um, we made our inquiries and I spoke to a gentleman who said after I explained what I was looking for yes he said I think you need to talk to my mother and so ultimately that woman contacted us and said yes we had the right family and she said that she had the two with three letters that were in the... A couple of letters. Letters, a couple of letters, and some that weren't published. And so Dennis and I made arrangements, and she came here, and she met with us. And so we met downstairs in the archive, and this woman, lovely, lovely woman, came in, and, and actually I, I didn't realize at the time that I had, had known the family, but she came in, and um, she handed us an envelope, handed me an envelope, and in it were, I don't know, seven or eight letters, which primarily were letters between her grandmother and Lizzie during the period that that Lizzie Borden's housekeeper, um, Hannah Nelson, Nelson, was dying. Poignant, poignant letters. But she also had a Ziploc, a large Ziploc bag sitting on the table. It was lying on the table beside her. And, of course, all the time I was looking at these letters, we were looking at them. I'm looking at that Ziploc bag thinking, what the hell's in that? And so <laughs> when we were through, she picked up this Ziploc bag and she sort of threw it across the table and landed in front of me. And she said, I don't know if you'll be interested in those. Those are just letters, notes, and greeting cards. They were sent to the children. And so I think there were something like, what, 54 of them or something? Mm-hmm. And they documented a period of over 20 years of Lizzie Borden's relationship with this family, absolutely fascinating. Because they they told us so much about Lizzie. For example, if you were traveling, she traveled extensively, she would call it running away, and her favorite place to run to was, was Washington. She loved Washington, she had close friends there. And so inevitably, when she ran away, she ran to Washington, and she would go and stay in a particular hotel, and she would take a parlor suite, and she had a driver there that she would engage, and she had close friends there, and so, um, she would run away to Washington and she would mention this in some of her notes. When she sent postcards to people, she didn't write a postcard and address it and put it in the mail as, as you or I would. She knew that her mail was being read by other people, that there was an interest. So she always had to enclose her postcards and envelopes. When she purchased greeting cards for people, she shopped and traveled throughout the country extensively and shopped voraciously. She loved to shop. 
um, it was said by, by a very close friend of hers that she would spend hours in the shops. And she would throughout the year look for particular cards that suited the right person. And, you know, I'll be the first one to admit that if I have to purchase a card, I go and grab one and sometimes maybe it's not as appropriate as it should be. But she read the inscriptions and read the sentiments and knew exactly the person it was for. And then she would initial on the back of the card who it was for so that when she was ready to send it, she knew who the card was for. So fa fascinating insight. The way she, she put the postage stamps on the... The postage stamps are, are so precise. You don't think of Lizzie Borden as using bunny stickers for Easter and, and, and Santa Claus stickers for Christmas. And of course, these were popular in the 20s and she stuck them on everything she possibly could. Mm -hmm. so, so it gives you this different insight you know, into who she was as a person. I think that the uh, story of the housekeeper uh, tells you an awful lot about the character yeah. of, of Lizzie Borden. Um, Hannah Nelson was um, her housekeeper during that difficult period um, when Emma left, and uh, during the Nance O'Neill period and whatever. Well, Hannah's brother lived in Riverside, Rhode Island, and uh, had two children. Um, I want to say five and seven or some, somewhere in that neighborhood. And they came down with infantile dysentery. And um, Hannah uh, or, or made arrangements to go and help her brother care uh, for the children. Um, this was July of 1908. And um, the children died within a week of each other. And Hannah contracted dysentery and was hospitalized at Rhode Island Hospital. We have correspondence between Lizzie and the hospital and the hospital and Lizzie about the condition of Hannah. And um, Hannah eventually died. And uh, as Michael said, uh, Lizzie was very distraught. Um, so distraught uh, to one point, uh, we had a letter in the collection that uh, Lizzie had written to um, Hannah's friend, uh, the Swedish woman that Lizzie had befriended. And um, she said that um, she couldn't believe that it had been nine months since it had happened. And when I first read it, I was thinking, like, this letter is written nine months after the uh, acquittal of the murders. And, and, but it wasn't. It was Hannah's death. And then she says, uh, I can't believe God has taken her from us. Her life was just stolen which is an ironic thing for someone that's been accused of a double murder to write. Um, Michael and I went on a field trip. Uh, we found out where Hannah was buried, and uh, she's in ancient Little Neck Cemetery in Riverside, Rhode Island. And so we headed out there. Um, we met the foreman. He showed us where the lot was, a nice little lot off the beaten track. There's a limestone obelisk, short one, uh, for the children. But oddly enough, it's uh, rather weather-worn, but it's standing on a polished granite block. And a little ways away on the, in, in the same lot is uh, a very large uh, granite and chiseled granite monument that says Sister on the front and then Hannah's name and dates. And uh, as it turns out, according to the foreman, uh, it was due to Lizzie Borden that that gravestone was put there in, in Hannah's honor. Her brother was a sweeper in a car barn, 
in Providence, Rhode Island, and uh, there's no way in hell that he would have been able to afford a monument like that. It's classic, Lizzie. It's beautifully cut. It's a fine piece of stone. So I think that that inscription at the top that says sister has a double meaning because I think in many ways that's how Lizzie Borden viewed Hannah. And, of course, one has to remember that, that Hannah Nelson was the housekeeper that was there during the period when Lizzie and Emma broke. So she would have been privy to a lot of what went on in that house. Why don't, well, since we're there, why don't you, what is, you know, fact or known fact? What, was there a, some big thing that caused a break or it was just time for two sisters to part? Well, we know exactly when it happened now. In the past, there was this speculation about, about a fight that the Borden sisters must have had. And was it over Nance O'Neill or was it over Lizzie Borden's coachman, whom she was very fond of? Uh, Lizzie, Lizzie liked men, and she liked good-looking men, and she had a lot of them um, who were around her throughout her life, and we know that for a fact. Um, one only has to look at her coachman and the relationships that she had with them. So um, I, I think that, that, that when you look at that period, you know, if you have two maiden sisters living together, even under pleasant circumstances, there's bound to be friction. Again, you know, I've been fortunate or unfortunate enough to know lots of maiden sisters, and um, there was always friction. And so I think in the case of the Borden sisters, you, you combine that with this sensational trial and um, two different personalities, and clearly there were lots of very tense situations. So what happened? Good question. But the newspapers, and I, I cannot recall the, the date in 1904, but the newspapers um, published an article saying that a moving wagon had pushed up, had uh, driven up to, to French Street and that Emma Borden's possessions were packed in and off she went. And so people assumed that this must be the day that she left and they had a fight over something. So. When we were doing research, we were able to access Mary Ellisheen Brigham's diaries. And she was a very close friend, of course, of both the Borden sisters and the mother-in-law of Florence Brigham, who was the, the curator here and certainly my mentor. And so when you look at the diaries several days before the moving van showed up, Emma Borden left. And so there was something leading up to it because Mary Ellisheen Brigham called at the Borden house on a number of occasions. But we do now know that about two weeks before she, Emma, was in Virginia with uh, one of Reverend Buck's daughters, who she was quite close to. And apparently Reverend Buck had advised her at one point that she should leave Lizzie. Of course, Reverend Buck had been dead several years by the time that Emma left. So it's interesting that he, uh, she had spent some time with, with Reverend Buck's daughter in, in the South. So when Emma left, it clearly was something I think that had been thought out to a point. When she left, she went to Swansea. But, you know, the stories are that she went to Newmarket, New Hampshire, and she remained there for the rest of her life, or went to Providence and lived in Providence for decades and then ultimately went to Newmarket. No, she didn't. 
So she, she left and she went to Swansea and she stayed with the Godner family, who she was quite close to, relatives actually. And within hours of being there, telephoned Mary Sheen Brigham and left a message as to where she was. A couple of days later, she was calling on friends in Fall River and called at the, the Brigham household, only a stone's throw away from Maplecroft and left her card because Mary Ella was not in, but she later returned the call. So she was around the area. She did move to Providence and lived with the Buck family, um, the uh, Gardner family for a short period of time and then ultimately took a uh, an apartment in Providence. But she returned to Fall River and lived right down on June Street for, for a number of years, I think over 10 years with the Buck sisters. So she was back in Fall River, but ceased to communicate with her sister. So in Emma's case, I think that that, you know, it probably got to the point where she realized that she needed a life of her own. I think that she also realized that there was nothing else she could do to protect Lizzie. Because by all accounts, Emma was a very retiring person who probably thought that her sister should sort of fade into the background. Lizzie just simply tried to lead a normal life. So she did go into shops and she did go to the theater and it got to the point where she no longer did those things in Fall River. But but I think she and Emma were clearly two different personalities. Wh whatever the rift was, the rift was so great that that the two never spoke again. Was it because Lizzie was strong-willed or because Emma was strong-willed? I don't know that, but I tend to think that probably it was Lizzie. And I say that because Lizzie had to protect herself and she was very kind and very generous. However, there was a, an unwritten code and friends of Lizzie's could never betray her in any way. And we know of one instance when someone did and she had the ability to completely shut those people off and she did that for the rest of her life. So I think that she simply shut out her sister. Would Emma have come around? Perhaps, I don't know that. I've never read her diaries, I, if they exist. But, but I think that perhaps Emma might've given in before Lizzie did. Was it upsetting to Emma? It, it must have been, but within months she was what in California, I think. And, mm -hmm. you know, so she traveled and, and went to Europe and, you know, so she, she had a, a fairly comfortable life, you know, after the fact. Well, I want to th thank you guys today. And I'd like to, of course, make a couple of pitches here. So the book, which is fascinating, um, it's not a typical Lizzie Borden book, but it is better than that. And it's called Parallel Lives, and it's by Michael Martins and Dennis Bennett. And they are the curators of the Fall River Historical Society. And so you should come down and visit that to see not just Lizzie Borden stuff, but uh, wonderful things about um, uh, Fall River, the city, which is uh, the Spindle City, correct? At one time. At one time. The, the Spindle, the spindle City or the City of the Dinner Pail, and that was and a now, reference to the you mills. Know, I mean, as we see, manufacturing's not, he manufacturing's not here anymore. Um, but it's worth the trip, and certainly if you're doing any kind of research, I agree with uh, both Dennis and, and Michael that you, you, know, you can't do it remotely on the internet from California. You really do have to come here to see, to touch, uh, to investigate if you're going to do anything uh, that remotely um, resembles fact. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you, Jim.